Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now today's message. Well, good morning, Covenant family. If you are a guest with us, my name's Joel. I'm one of the pastors here. We are in a series called Ask Anything Summer. Back in the spring, we asked you to send us in any and all questions that you had. Uh, whether or not we were able to get to them, I want, you, I want to thank you. Every one of you have sent questions in. It gives me, as a pastor, uh, some insight into what's going on in people's minds and hearts and souls. Uh, but these last couple of weeks, we're going to aim at a couple of specific populations. Our, our teens today and our kids tomorrow, uh, uh, on, on next Sunday. And so you don't want to miss these next two, especially if you're a parent or a grandparent. It may give you some keen insight, actually, into what may be going on in the mind of your child or the mind of your teen. But today, we focus on an awesome group of people, and that's our student ministry. And I say they're awesome. I mean that, not just because two of them live in my house, but because I am watching God work in absolutely powerful ways in this particular group of teens. I'm very thankful for what God's doing. We need to pray for them. We need to surround them with our prayers. We need to have their backs. The enemy is going to work on them. He cannot be happy about what I know I'm seeing and even the things that I'm not seeing. Uh, just to give you one indication of that, now this is one of those churches where there's never going to be an occasion where everybody's going to show up, right? But if they all showed up on a Wednesday night, there would be about a hundred of them and you just need to know that over 50 of them are engaging the world in some way over the course of the next year. God is using them. They're not just coming and soaking up. They're not just coming and playing games. They're going to be headed, some of them, to Southeast Asia. They already got back from the beach. I know that sounds like suffering for Jesus, but they were touching the lives of other students about their age and older from all over the world. God is moving in our youth ministry right now, and I am incredibly grateful to see what he's doing. And so parents, uh, might be a good message to listen to this morning. If you've got one of these teens living in your house, because I've got five questions here that some of them are pretty deep. Uh, they ask really good questions. And so I want to get to as, as many of these as possible, as quickly as possible. So we'll start with question number one. How do you know if you're a good Christian? That's a reasonable question, right? How do I know if I'm a good Christian? Well, here's one of the issues with that question. It's a good question. It's also a relatively vague question. I'm not exactly sure. Number one, I don't know who asked it. Number two, I don't know the context behind it. Uh, and so I want to, my, my biggest fear when I get a question like this is I'm going to answer something that nobody is asking. And, and so, but here's what I decided to do. I, you know, I, I've been fooling around. I, I hear from my kids all the time about artificial intelligence. And so I finally said, all right, I'm going to bite the bullet. I wonder how ChatGPT would answer this question. And so that's what I did. I went into ChatGPT and I just typed out, how do I know if I'm a good Christian? And this, ladies and gentlemen, uh, is what I got. It said certain traits, there are certain traits that are commonly associated with being a good Christian. These include the following, following the teachings of Jesus Christ. A good Christian seeks to follow the teachings of Jesus as laid out in the Bible. They strive to live their life according to the principles of love, compassion, forgiveness, and service to others. Number two, living a moral and ethical life. 
Uh, a good Christian strives to live a life that is moral and ethical, avoiding behaviors that are considered sinful or harmful to others. Number three, regularly attending church and participating in religious activities. It's an important aspect of being a good Christian. It allows one to connect with other believers and strengthen their relationship with God. Number four, practicing prayer and meditation. These are important practices for Christians as they allow one to connect with God on a deeper level and seek guidance and strength in their daily life. And then number five, sharing the gospel. A good Christian seeks to share the good news of Jesus Christ with others and bring them into the faith. That ain't bad for a robot, is it? That's not too bad. Here's the problem with the whole thing, though. Every bit of that surface level. It's not unimportant, all right? It, it's not that this isn't something you're supposed to do. It's, it's missing the main ingredient, okay? Because while it is true that, that someone really can't truly belong to Jesus for very long without eventually and consistently seeing these things happen in their life, it is equally true you can do all of these things and not belong to Jesus, did you know that? You can try to live out Christian principles. You can be a moral, ethical person. You can even proselytize as a means of trying to get other people to think the way you think, only to discover in the end that you never belong to Jesus. He says this himself in Matthew 7, 22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your look at everything we did look at all the bible study look at all the stuff we had memorized look at it and then i will declare to them i never knew you depart from me you workers of lawlessness so here's what we should learn y'all didn't ask a question about ai but let me tell you a little something about ai ai is very useful for giving you facts but not truth and there's a difference okay Here's the truth. Think for a moment about baseball. All right? You could knock one all the way against the back wall, and then you make it all the way to home, and you slide into home. But if, if you, for whatever reason, missed first base, what's the call at the plate? Yeah, you're out. All right? So first base for the Christian faith is this. It's John chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, what does that mean? Okay. What does it mean to be a good Christian? Well, apparently it means at a very minimum to be born again. Well, to be born again means believing that the scriptures tell us that repeatedly we come into this world cursed by the fall of humanity and eventually and inevitably that leads to our own willful rebellion. That means you, me, every other human being on the planet are sinners by nature and the answer to that sin curse is not to turn over a new leaf or start behaving better or enter a 12-step program. All those things are wonderful in and of themselves, but none of them can save you. The answer is a new heart. The answer is a, a new nature. See, and that's what Jesus is talking about there. And God's word tells us when we receive that new nature, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, we become new creatures in Christ. And our life at that point begins to be defined by something different and something powerful. Paul would describe it in Galatians 2 and verse 20. He says, I am crucified with Christ. I continue to live, and yet I don't live. It is Christ who lives within me so that the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Something is qualitatively different about me because I'm now living in the power of Jesus, and the active ingredient of that is something that Paul calls faith. And so it starts with repentance and faith. 
Romans 10, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead and you will be saved. And scripture tells us it's that kind of genuine faith that brings us to be born again and it produces this kind of life. It's the kind of life that Chat GP t- talks about, at least on the surface. But Jesus describes what this looks like deep within the recesses of our hearts. And in John chapter 10, he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Okay? So to answer the question, how do I know I'm a good Christian, you have to first reword it. How do I know I'm a disciple of Jesus? Because that's what a good Christian is. A bad Christian is somebody who maybe does all these things that AI described for us but doesn't really know Jesus. A bad Christian is someone who says they're a Christian but they live like hell. And their life has, there's no discernible difference between the way that they live and, and the way that the world lives. A disciple of Jesus hears and obeys. And they do it because they are born again and thus empowered with both the desire and the capacity to do it. You don't have that capacity outside of this born again experience that, that Jesus talks about. Now here's, here's why I'm answering the question in this way. Sometimes we, we're well-meaning, but we get distracted with inaccurate understandings of what it means to be a good Christian. And it's not just you. If you're the teen who's asked this question, your parents, your grandparents sometimes come to their pastors and they come with questions like, I mean, exactly how much of the Bible should I actually understand before I can be considered a mature follower of Jesus? Well, I'm going to tell you, I know PhDs from theological seminaries who are not as spiritually mature as people who never finished high school. So it's not about what you know. It's about what you hear and about what you do. Okay. Pastor, I've got, you know, I just got diagnosed with attention deficit disorder, and I can't stay on my knees for more than five or ten minutes. I wonder if I'm even saved. Pastor, I'm, I'm not articulate. I stumble. I stutter when I talk about my faith. I, I can't really point to anybody that I've ever led to Jesus. I've really tried. I talk about my faith. But listen, listen, read the Gospels and look. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, every single time Jesus commended somebody, okay, in a way that stuck out. I'm talking about a Roman centurion who said to him, Lord, you don't have to come to my house. I'm not even worthy that you should stand under my roof. If you will just speak the word right here, I know that my daughter will be healed. I'm talking about a woman who had some kind of, of, some kind of blood issue who just said, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I, I'll be I'm talking about a widow who gave an amount that most of us would probably consider negligible. People that stuck out because Jesus pointed to something that would have otherwise not even been noticed by the wider culture. And he says, this is an example of good faith, good following of me. And it was because of two things every single time, faith and obedience. I believe what Jesus said, and I'm going to do what he said. So keep using chat GPT. It's not necessary. It doesn't always necessarily give you wrong answers, but sometimes it gives you woefully incomplete answers. And in this case, it just put the wrong thing at the center. And I suspect that's why questions like this come up. It's because we do tend to look at the surface a lot of times, don't we? Scripture tells us God looks at the heart. God looks at the heart. You want to be a good Christian? Be a disciple. You want to be a disciple? Hear and obey. Believe everything he tells you. Respond in obedience 
to everything he tells you to do. And that actually leads really well into the second question because there's no way for you to know what he's telling you to do outside of his revealed word. And so question number two, it may surprise some of you that this came from your teens. How do I get more into the word and stay on track with God? How do, how do I do that? So thank you for asking a question that too many people are afraid to ask because they think maybe they're not supposed to ask it. Uh, and let me tell you something. You're more mature at your age than your pastor was at his age. I, I can tell you that because about four months after I graduated high school, I got a call from a deacon in my church. He's been with Jesus now for a couple of decades. His name was Mark Lee Edwards, godly man. And, and he called me because I had sent him a graduation announcement. Now, we all know what graduation announcements are about, right? Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that because Lord knows when you finish school, you need money. Amen. You need money for college. You need money for book. You need money for pizza. You, you need money. You just need money. And, and so he had written me a very generous check and, and he called me and he said, you know, I, I'm sorry, this is a little uncomfortable for me, but it's never cleared my, back, back when I graduated, like there weren't apps, there weren't phones, there were, there were these things called paper checks and you actually had to take them to the bank and he said it hasn't cleared, meaning that it hadn't been cashed yet. And I said, oh, Mr. Edwards, I'm so sorry, I'm going to go see if I can find it. And I found it. It was in my Bible. And, and so I took it to the bank, and then I called him back. I'm so sorry. I, this is where I found it. And this, this is what that man said to me, and it changed the trajectory of my... Some of you are deacons, or you're working with, with teens, or you're working with kids, and you think, I, it's not making any difference. I'm about to tell you about a moment that made the world a difference in this pastor's life. He said, well, young man, I, I'll tell you, I'm glad you, you found it. I, I'm really not upset about the check. And I'm not bothered by it. If you'd never found it, it wouldn't have bothered me. But can I just tell you something that really bothers me? And I said, sure. He said that apparently that sat in your Bible for two months and you didn't know it was there, which means you haven't opened your Bible in two months. So whoever's asking this question is already three steps ahead at your age of where I was when I was your age, maybe even older. So, so kudos to you, all right? And to those of you who are trying to, to egg them on to, to, to build these disciplines into your life, here, here's why the question really should get asked. Let me, can we just admit something about the Bible? It's old, isn't it? It's old. It was written a long time ago. It is also different. It was written within the context of two very distinct cultures that no longer exist. And when you put those two things together, Sometimes it makes Scripture difficult to understand. I, I used to tell Old Testament students at a Baptist college I taught at my home state, I can make this compelling to you. I can make this intriguing to you. I, my hope is that you will walk out of here 16 weeks later having thoroughly enjoyed exploring the depths of what we call the Old Testament. But the one thing I cannot do, I cannot make this easy. I can't do it because it's old and because it's different. Now, if you're asking this question, though, it's because you, you understand something else about the Bible. Yes, it's old and different. It is also the Word of God. And so it is worth the digging. It is worth the exploration. It is worth it to dig underneath. And, and, and there's actually a book I can recommend for understanding it. I happen to know the author. He's me. 
And uh, it, no, our elders gave me leave about five years ago. We, we, we published this book called The Story. Uh, the deal was I get some weeks off uh, undisturbed so I can get this project finished. The church gets it at cost. So if you want a copy of the story, all it really does is help you put a framework around the story of Scripture, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. If that's something you'd like to read and explore for yourself, it is available to you courtesy of your church family. You just need to write in and ask us for it. Or if you're a teen, ask one of your leaders for it. Uh, we'll get you a copy of it. But let me give you some practical principles to get started here. How do I get into the Word? Principle number one is this, start reasonably. Be reasonable. I want you to think about your life, your class schedule that's coming up this fall, your athletic commitments. Oh, yeah, don't put any of that ahead of Jesus, but you do have to think about life rhythms. I mean, because at some point you're going to get out of school and you're going to get a job. And they're, they're actually, you can't show up an hour late and say, sorry, I was in the Word, and, and keep your job, right? You, you've got to build this into your life rhythms and you've got to sink your intake of scripture into those rhythms so so don't leave it out because nothing else in your life will ever be right but do be realistic okay don't be one of these people that you've never done it before you've always been inconsistent but right here right now you get inspired in the middle of a church service you go all right that's it tomorrow morning 5 a.m i'm up i'm reading it for an hour i'm going to do that six days a week for the rest of my life no you're not no, you're not. If you're one of those people that didn't even know until now that 5.30 comes twice a day, this is not going to be a workable plan for you, okay? I'm going to read the whole thing in a year. That is admirable. I think it's a great long-term goal. I have done just such a thing. I, it's a wonderful thing to aspire to. It might not be the most realistic thing for you to get started in, okay? Now, let me tell you, you, you just got to figure out what that looks like for you. And so I read in the evening typically not long before I go to bed I'm generally an early riser but if I'm up at say six I was up at six this morning but what am I think what do you think I was thinking about when I got up at six this morning right here right yeah this moment what am I what am I gonna be doing most of the time when I get up what is what are most working people thinking about it, it what's ahead of them and the way my brain works and the, and the way God wired me, that's just not the best time to intake Scripture because I'm, I'm always going to be, it's like I can't help myself. I'm going to be thinking about something else. So the mornings, for me, are more about prayer. They're, they're more about just getting my heart in sync with the Lord, talking about my day with the Lord. Those two are not mutually exclusive from each other. God, I have this impossible situation I have to deal with, and I need your help in this, and I don't know what to do. Get my soul centered right, and then the evening is about the intake of scriptures. I look back on a day that's already been completed. Now, that's me, because I've come to understand how I'm wired, I'm understanding uh, how, how I'm built, what works, what doesn't work, whatever that is for you, you need to find that, and you need to be reasonable about it. Secondly, you just need to discover what works best. So, for example, maybe you're just not a reader at all. I, I can't imagine someone who's not. But, but if that's you, that doesn't make you less. But in the day and age in which we live, you, you have this wonderful thing now called AirPods. Pop them in. Get yourself a Bible app with an audio version. You know, you can even get Snoop Dogg to read the Bible to you now. It's like the craziest thing in the world. I wouldn't necessarily recommend it, but... I have to tell you, it's intriguing. You can get just about any character in the world to read Scripture.
to you. Maybe you love to listen. Pop those earbuds in and listen to it while your parents are taking you to school. Or if you're headed to work in D.C., you're an adult, maybe while you're on the train, while you're exercising. But do what works best for you. Whatever gets God's word into your mind, into your soul, do that. Thirdly, focus when you're reading on understanding rather than just scholarship. Okay? And there's a Bible that we'll give to you from our youth, from our youth ministry. It's called the Seven Arrows Bible. And it, and it helps you understand seven questions that you need to ask of every passage of Scripture. Let me just go over these with you. And then you can, you, can, you can grab a copy if you want a copy. Question number one, what does it say? Because words mean things. And these are God's words. And so we need to know what it says. Number two, what did it mean to its original audience? Number three, what do I learn about God? Number four, what do I learn about humanity? Number five, what does this passage demand of me? Number six, how might this passage change the way I relate to others? How do I love my neighbor in, the possible, in, in, in this? And, and number seven, what does this passage prompt me to pray? There you go. There's that, there's that in, in, inextricable link between prayer and, and taking in the word. And by the way, that prayer certainly can include, Lord, I don't know what I'm reading. Help me understand this. Chuck Smith, many of you, if you're a teenager listening to this, you probably don't even know who he was. He's been in heaven for many years now. He was a founder of something called the Calvary Chapel Movement. He was very influential in a lot of young pastors' lives, including my own. And he would, when, when he would get up to preach, he would always hold up his Bible, not a tablet. It was an actual book way back then. And he would say, this is God's word. This is life. Let's open it together. Well, that's true. So when I get a question like this from a teenager, I'm excited I'm excited for you. I'm excited for your future. Now, here's question number three. What do you do when you've lost your way? In other, or slash, like when you're in habitual sin, you want to change and nothing seems to work. How, how do you, what do you do next? Let me, let me say a couple things here at the outset. The fact that you have asked this question means that whatever this is in your life is bothering you. And that's a good thing. Okay, that's a good sign. That's the conviction of the Holy Spirit who loves you. You likely would not feel guilt or remorse without that. And so while I hate to hear that anybody is tormented by feelings like this, I just want you to know that sense of dread itself is a sign that God has not given up on you. He has not left you. He has not left you to yourself. He is not walking away from you. It's his loving call to come home. All right. So don't feel like, oh my gosh, I'm so separated. No, it's those feelings themselves that should, should be a testimony to you that God is still with you. The second thing I want to say, just because this is probably coming from a teen, is that there's some developmental factors that have to be considered when we're talking about teenagers. Okay, I don't know how old the person was who wrote this question, but let's just, let's just put you right in the, the center of the target for your age group and say you're a 16-year-old. Okay. What we know now about the prefrontal cortex of your brain is that it is not yet fully developed and will not be until you reach 25 years of age. That's, that, that's the part of your brain that controls major decision making. You're starting to understand, parents, now why your auto insurance goes way up when they start driving? Right? It's, it's, not, it's not that, are they stupid? No, they're not stupid. There are things neurologically that haven't developed yet. So just from a, a neurological standpoint, if you're a 16-year-old, you've got another nine years 
before your mind becomes consistent enough that your struggles begin to come into clearer focus. That is not your pastor excusing habitual sin in your life. But what I am saying is that all of us in this room need to recognize that struggle is exponentially harder for you at this age than it is for someone like me. So we ought to have some compassion for kids at this age. And this is the point at which many people in the church, we've tried, we've had good intentions. Sometimes we've not been the most helpful to you. Sometimes what happens is is the church will pile on shame and guilt, two, two things that we tend to have a lot of in the Christian faith. And and what we're hoping that will do is deter you, right? Almost a Pavlovian type thing. Oh, well, I don't want to feel that way, so I'm going to behave as, listen, if you're already feeling feelings of guilt and you're admitting there's a habitual problem here, then you're also admitting the the, the continual guilt isn't working. It's not the tool that needs to be. Here's the issue in the church. So often we try to use shame and guilt as a tool to prevent sin. And every single time we do it, we forget that shame and guilt didn't even exist until sin. Right? Shame and guilt are the result of sin. They're not tools to prevent it. They're the result of what comes after it's committed. So you can't do that. So let's let's take sex, for example. All right? If you're a teenager... Stuff's coming alive, you got hormones raging, and everybody's looking at me like I'm the dad, going, oh my God, I can't believe he's talking about this right now. But all that stuff's happening. Listen, we believe in a biblical sexual ethic at covenant. We think there's one and only one context in which it is permissible and approved by God for you or for any of us to engage in sexual activity, and that is when you have found another person of the opposite gender and you have come together with them in the covenant of marriage and that's where it happens all right we believe that but sometimes that comes with some additional fear-mongering if you remember I said last week that that libertinism says well we have to soft pedal some things because scripture sometimes goes too far and legalism by contrast says well scripture really doesn't say enough we need to add some things to it and the thing we like to add when it comes to habitual sin especially if it's sexual sin is is fear-mongering and what happens what happens is you have a young man who's struggling with a pornography addiction and they don't feel like they can come to anybody they got because they're going to get more guilt and more shame and so they they drive it deeper into secrecy and you know what happens to a porn habit when it goes deeper into secrecy it gets bigger it gets worse a young woman makes a decision to be intimate with someone before marriage and because of this male-female thing we've got going on in our, our, our culture, all of a sudden they're told or it's insinuated in some way in the church. And now because you've given that away, you're damaged goods. Little sister, listen to me. That's a lie from the devil himself. I don't care if it came out of the mouth of another Christian. It's a lie. You are not damaged goods that nobody wants. Jesus wants you. Any young man who doesn't feel the same way is not worthy of you. Where's that come from, though? It comes from guilt. Pile it on. Pile it on. Guilt, shame, fear. Let me give you three observations. If there's something you're struggling with, okay? I'm not telling you it wasn't a sin to do it. I'm not telling you God doesn't get angry with you. He does. I'm saying God is not somebody that you've got to walk on eggshells around. He makes it very clear. And all you've got to do is come back. That's it. That's all you have to do. So three things. Number one. Everybody struggles with something. Everybody. 
And if you don't believe me, read Paul's words in Romans 7. He says, he gives this long diatribe. He says, there's things I want to do that I don't do. There's things I do that I don't want to do. And this big crescendo comes in Romans 7, 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He's struggling. Now, this is the same guy that two chapters earlier said, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? So he's not excusing the sin. He's not saying, well, it, it's okay then. I can just struggle with it. You guys just put up with me. And, and you, you know, it's that, it's that nonsense stuff you see on Facebook. If you can't handle me fully leaded, which is another way of saying, if you can't handle me when I'm an insufferable jerk, well, nobody wants to handle you when you're an insufferable jerk. Nobody wants to do that. Paul says, I, it's wrong, and yet I struggle. It's not right that we continue in sin, but the struggle is real. If that's how you feel, you have a fellow struggler in the guy who wrote half of our New Testament. Take heart. You are not alone. Number two, when you struggle, struggle together. All right, now particularly for teens, i got to say, at your age, you, you need your peers for this, but you also need authority figures for this. I'm really trying not to insult you, but you remember what I said earlier about the prefrontal cortex of your brain? Okay? When you get together and you start discussing really serious stuff without a parent, without an authority figure, without somebody, I'm not saying you should never, ever, ever do that. I'm just saying the same thing is true for you that was true for me when I was hanging out with all my dopey friends. We can't solve the problem on our own. You, you need your church family. And you've got some amazing leaders here. You've got leaders who, they're not going to tell you it's okay, but they're also not going to fight face-to-face with you. They're going to fight shoulder-to-shoulder with you. You see the difference? All right? We, we're going to do this together. I mean, at least one of the reasons that we're told at the very beginning of time that it is not good for man to be alone is because in all ways we need each other. So if you're struggling with habitual sin, this church is never going to lie to you, but we're also not going to come down. We're not going to judge. We're not going to pile on shame. And to those of you who work with our teens, God bless you for what you do. Let me say something that's going to sound pretty harsh right now, and I don't mean it to be that way, but I want to be abundantly clear. So if you work with our teens in any fashion, listen to, my, listen to this part. When I say... We're not going to pile on shame and guilt. Don't y'all make a liar out of your pastor. When I send them to you, don't do it. All right? Don't be so good. Listen, truth is immortal. It doesn't need you propping it up. You can just stand in it and be compassionate at the same time. All right? As long, but here's the thing. As long as Satan allows this stuff, whatever this is, to be in the dark, he will always have victory over you. You bring it into the light, and you let your brothers and sisters, but not, not just, again, not just your peers. Don't, don't take somebody who's still growing up themselves, still struggling themselves, and dump all of that on them. You bring it to somebody in the church, a, a leader, a pastor, a deacon, an authority figure, somebody who can struggle with you. And then thirdly, focus on the superior. The reason that sin entraps us is because we believe the lie that there's something it gives us that we can't get anywhere else. Or that there's something it gives us that, that only God can fill. And here's how Paul put it in Philippians 3. He said, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. 
for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Now, what Paul's talking about there is legalism, worthless religion that he thought would fulfill him. Sometimes it's, it's easy for us to forget that God doesn't just call us to, to repent of sin, as in the, you know, the, the stuff that we all kind of recognize as wrong and forbidden, but, but he also calls self-righteous people to repent of their self-righteousness because that'll send you to hell just as quick. And so for Paul, that's what this was. But whatever you're struggling with, the principle is the same. The principle is Jesus is more beautiful than that thing. Jesus is more fulfilling than that thing. Jesus will not leave you after an experience with him, with the feelings that you have right now. And I, and I say all that to remind you of this. When you repent, you say, I, I can't seem to repent, meaning I, I can't, Pastor, I've heard you say that repentance isn't just saying I'm sorry, it's I, I don't want to do this anymore, I want to begin to operate in another way. Well, it might be because you're only doing half of it, which is to say you are trying to faithfully turn from something, but you forgot when you turn from, you're also turning to. And Paul just told us who to turn to. Jesus is all satisfying. There is no one, we, we sing that here. Nothing is better than you. Do we believe it? Do we believe it? And just know this, I, I, don't, I don't know who you are, I don't need to know, but I'm praying for you. I am certain that you are not alone, not even because I'm aware of other situations, although certainly I am, but, but because we're all humans here. I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you youth leaders. They're praying for you. And we are for you. Brother, sister, we're for you. Now here's question number four. Because they didn't want to just make everything easy on me. How do I know God is real? So this one is going to get pretty deep. I need you to hang with me, okay? The author of Hebrews tells us that faith is a conviction about things that we do not see. Right? So, so first and foremost, among the things that we cannot see is our creator. But the scriptures, what they don't tell us is that faith is blind. They're, well, I'm just going to believe it because the Bible says it. Well, well that, that, that's also not something that is necessarily commended to us. People in the scriptures question God's existence. They question his actions. And, and so here's the bottom line. People way smarter than me have for centuries sought to demonstrate God's existence and they they could not prove it like beyond a reasonable doubt so let me just say at the outset I am highly unlikely to do that here but what I do want to do is you struggle with this question is I want to give you four primary arguments they've been around for about a thousand years okay I'm glad you asked this question it's a valid question I want you to be careful if you're the person who asked this question getting into circles of people who will say things like, yeah, those are those tough questions that the church never deals with and nobody in the church ever talks about it. Anybody who says that to you either can't read or they're just lying to you. There's about a thousand years of deep thought on this subject by followers of Jesus, all right? And, and you boil it down to basically four philosophical arguments. And I, I'm going to use some big words here. Bear with me. Don't act like you can't. Some of y'all in weeks from now, you're going to be studying trigonometry for crying out loud. You can learn some big words. Okay. The first is what we call the ontological argument for God's existence. There was a bishop in the 12th century named Anselm who made this statement. God is that 
than which nothing greater can be conceived. What does he mean by that? It means to think of God as he has revealed himself is to admit that that God exists. If I can conceive in my mind that such a supreme being exists, then logically that God must exist. And some of you are probably thinking, well, wait a minute now, hang on. I can conceive of a unicorn, and I know they don't exist. I can conceive of, yes, that, that's not, I can conceive of that flying spaghetti monster that is the parody of so many atheist tropes about Christianity and Islam and other theistic religions, but, but I can't, yeah, th this is, if you can conceive, not of the flying spaghetti monster, not of the unit, not of another finite kind of thing, but of an actual infinite being, the fact that your mind can conceive of a being for whom nothing and no one is greater means that the only logical conclusion is that this being exists. So in Psalm 14:1, when it says, the fool has said in his heart there is no God, it, what, what's going on underneath the surface even of that psalm is even the prospect of denying God is kind of an implication that that God exists because his existence is a logical necessity. Now Anselm's argument admittedly is one of pure logic, but, he, but that's what he's saying. It's logically impossible to contend, for example, that there's a triangle but it has four sides. It is equally logically impossible to contend there is an infinite being out there greater than all other beings that I can somehow with my finite mind comprehend such a being and at the same time that being not exist. That's what's called the ontological argument. Closely related to it is called the cosmological argument. It says the evidence of God's existence is inherently present in the cosmos. So the universe and all that it contains when you, you go out this afternoon in any of our three parking lots and you just pick a car and you see the metals the plastics the all these kinds of things i don't think any reasonable person would think that all those parts and all that just just suddenly sort of came together in, in coincidental fashion you're going to look at that automobile and reasonably conclude somebody made that somebody manufactured that so the argument goes something like this how more how much more complex than a car than a space shuttle is the human body. Is our precise and exactly, they called us a Goldilocks planet, right? Meaning it's not too hot, not too cold. What is that? That's our, our placement from the sun. The placement of our ozone layer. I mean, even if you're one of those folks that believes this came about over millions and even billions of years, you're an old earth kind of person, that, that still doesn't answer the question, where did the original matter come from? There was something that begat all the begetting. What was that something? The third argument is what's called the teleological. Telos just means end in Greek, and so the teleological argument deals not just with the existence of the universe, but the state of its design. William Paley, one of the first uh, 18th century scholars to, to forward something called natural theology, said the following, there cannot be a design without a designer, contrivance without a contriver, order without choice, arrangement without anything capable of arranging, subserviency and relation to a purpose without that which would intend a purpose, means suitable to an end and executing their office and accomplishing that end without the end ever having been contemplated or the means accommodated to it. What we see all around us had a beginning. That's his point. Aristotle called this beginning the uncaused cause. You and I call him God. All right? So teleological, cosmological, ontological, and then finally moral. 
Now, this argument points to the fact that you and I have this sort of ingrained sense of right and wrong. Now, our, our meters are broken, which is why we sometimes do wrong things, but we have a sense of right and wrong. I mean, you go into the most hardened maximum security prison in America, and, and you're going to find even, there's a line. It may be way down the line from where your line is, where my line is, but those hardened criminals know there's a right and there's a wrong. Where did that sense of right and wrong come from? How can there be a sense of that if there is not some universal moral law? And how can there be a law if there's not a law giver? And all of this, by the way, is reflective of the scriptures themselves. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Cosmological. Teleological, Romans 1, verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made, so they are without excuse. And then the moral, one chapter later, Romans 2, they show that the work of the law is written in their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Here, here's the overall point. The Bible dares us to explore the deepest recesses of our own logic, the most profound depths of our own moral consciousness, to look as deep into the external universe as we wish to see if we can find anything that does not cry out to us that we have a creator and that we are made in his image and likeness. Everything that we see and those things that we don't see. Now, is that an open-shut case? No. But I will leave you with this. It takes far more faith to believe there isn't a God than it does to believe there is. And so, wh whoever this is, you're asking good questions, you're asking fair questions. Again, I'll tell you, you're asking questions that every generation that came before you has already asked. So don't believe that nonsense that everybody in the church is trying to avoid this stuff. Stand on the shoulders of that good scholarship. Centuries of it. Read. Struggle with it. Take your time. Those questions, are, we're not averse to those here. We welcome them. Even as we remind you constantly, we do believe there is a God that God has spoken. Most importantly, that God loves you. That God loves you. All right, one final question. I like this one. Pastor, what's your favorite Bible story? I, I got I I, I to deal with this one because actually it's hard for me to, to pick one. But when you ask me that question, my mind sort of reflexively goes to 2 Kings chapter 6. There's a prophet there named Elisha. And he has been put on public enemy number one list of the king of Syria. Syria and Israel are at war at this point, and, and the Syrian king learns that no matter what he does, no matter what kind of secrets he tries to keep in terms of strategy and placement of troops, I mean, somehow Elisha finds out about it and informs the Israelite army, and Israel is always ready for them. He is told by his advisors, Elisha tells Israel what you speak in your private bedroom. And so the king says, well, I think now I know what my problem is. If we can take out the prophet, we will eliminate the espionage. And so in 2 Kings 6, there's this place called Dothan, not Alabama, another place. And Elisha and his servant are together. They get up in the morning. The servant looks out, and he sees that they are completely surrounded by the most overwhelming Syrian army 
that he's ever seen. And he, because he's normal, freaks out. And he says, what are we going to do? And, and Elisha says something that I, it's one of, my favorite, one of my favorite sayings in Scripture. He says, don't be afraid. Those that are with us are more than those that are with them. Now, it doesn't look that way. And so the prophet prays. And he says, would you, Lord, would you open my servant's eyes? And he does. I talked to this with our teens a couple of Wednesday nights ago. Spiritual warfare, you need to understand, there's a whole other realm that we more often than not cannot see, cannot touch. I mean, our five senses won't get there, but, but it's not some far off place. That veil is tissue paper thin. And this is one of those moments in the Old Testament where God just tore the tissue paper down and allowed this man to see all of the armies full of horses, chariots of fire, angelic armies, right? Standing in between Elisha and his servant and the kings of Syria. And then there's not even a battle. Elisha prays and the whole Syrian army gets struck blind. That's a nice strategy. He leads them to Samaria, which is at this point the capital of Israel, and he prays again, and their eyes are open. They realize now they're no longer surrounding their enemy. Their enemy is surrounding them. And they look, and they see the king of Israel at that time, who looks at Elisha, and just to put it briefly, says, you want me to kill him? Now, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Somebody says, yeah, I do. Yeah, take him out. They tried to take me out. And here's what Elisha does. Instead of killing them, they fed their enemies a great feast. Now, why do I love that story? Because it, it, it teaches me, number one, something I said a little earlier in this message, truth is immortal. It'll outlast me. It was around before I was born. It'll be around long after I'm gone. It does not change. I don't have to, do, like one of, my, <laughs> one of my theology professors had to remind me of that. I said, thank you for equipping me to defend the truth. And he said, Joel, the truth does not need your defense. It simply is. Luther used to say, it's like a lion. All you got to do is just open the cage. That's it. And it will do what it's going to do. And so when Elisha, very calm, very cool, surrounded by the situation in which any normal person might be tempted to freak out, just says, those that are with us are more than those that are with them. That was the truth. His servant couldn't see it, but that doesn't matter because it's the truth. It's immortal. It doesn't, guys, there really is in a world where everything seems to be shaking right now, something that is immovable that you and I can hang on to. Truth, secondly, is unbeatable. Open my eyes, strikes the army blind, leads them to Samaria, opens their eyes. Now they're surrounded. Eventually the truth wins out every single time. But thirdly, and this is what I've looked at more when I talk about how we engage the world together as God's people, truth eventually brings reconciliation. Listen, I, I'm not a pacifist. You guys know that. I think there are reasons that nations need to have militaries. I think there are times that we need to go to war. Now, I think when you're the biggest, baddest nation that's ever existed in the history of humanity, like the one we're living in right now, you ought to think three or four times before you engage those big, bad weapons, remembering that there is a God still bigger than you who's going to make you answer for that. 
if you do something simply to thump your chest. I believe in just warfare. But, but the role of the church is something entirely different. And we see something of that role in this story. Truth will eventually bring reconciliation. That, so that's my favorite Bible story. I, I hope that helps. So, and, and, and again, this is why we on occasion take time to answer questions like these directly. Because the Lord's not afraid of them. Uh, I'm certain I have not satisfied everybody's curiosity in these few moments. Life is more complicated than that. Truth is more complex than that. So here's what I'll tell you. Whether you're one of our teens who asked one of these questions or whether you're an adult sitting there with a whole list of other ones that you've got now, keep asking. Keep asking. The church, listen, this is what theology is. It is a 2,000-year-old conversation that the church has with itself. Let's keep talking. Let's keep growing. Let's keep moving toward faithfulness to Jesus in all things. And, and to our teens, thank you for the honor of actually reaching out to me with your questions. Can we pray together? Lord, I thank you for this day. Uh, I thank you for your word. And I thank you for honest questions, things that uh, are difficult sometimes to deal with in a venue like this. But Lord, my prayer is that, that this becomes the launch pad to one-on-one -on -one conversations, to small group conversations, to other conversations that will help us to grow toward each other and toward you. And so unite us, Lord, in these few moments as we begin to consider how we're going to respond. Five different issues that have been dealt with here, Lord, and even beyond that, I know your spirit, because you always do, seek to prick and move around in the hearts of people in ways that I'm not even aware of. And so, Holy Spirit, come and move and convict and bring us where we need to be in these closing moments. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already receive from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.